Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the box office of 1999 here from a multiplex in 2019. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today to discuss the box office of 1999 is the the founder and... um, an operator of boxofficeguru.com, um, my favorite box office website, has been for 22 years, Gitesh Pandya. Gitesh, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Um, I, uh, as you know, as I just said to you, I've been reading you pretty much since the beginning. And um, would you want to go into a little bit of, of why you founded the site and um, what your background is? Yeah, sure. Well, it was... You know, in a nutshell, it was a way to get some information out to people, information that I cared about and, you know, maybe others cared about. So I started tracking box office in the late 80s, 88, 89 is when I first started to get interested in it. Uh, it was hard to come across, but, uh, you know, I would compile numbers, put them into a spreadsheet. Uh, it might have been VisiCalc back then. I'm not really sure. And I would uh, analyze numbers and look at trends and so on. So I had compiles a lot of info, a lot of data from 89 up until 97. And then in 97, I decided, you know, let's make a website, put all of this data that I've compiled online for anyone to access and use whichever way they want. And um, started writing a column, uh, putting in my opinions about the box office, uh, how movies might do, wrapping it up after the weekend is over with the numbers, and uh, just kind of uh, been doing that ever since. That's really that's really cool. So in '97, you were 
kind of the only person doing this. Um, and one of the, the kind of the forerunners of this box office watching thing that became very big around then. Um, do you think that's, that's, how has that changed over the last like 22 years? Well, I think it's changed a lot. I mean, certainly the trades have been uh, covering box office for decades. So, you know, I would look at variety probably mm-hmm. with being, being a New Yorker. Um, you know, it, it was some of the trades, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, L.A. based. Uh, uh, it would take a while through the mail for issues to come out this way. So I used to go to libraries or anywhere I could find um, the issues to get the numbers and to see what's happening. Uh, there's sort of no online resources you know, back around 89, 90 and so on. So, um, you know, over time it's gotten more sophisticated. Uh, studios have gotten more involved, especially on the PR side to put their spin on things. And, you know, you always come across studios making up these wild and crazy records that they've made for their numbers, trying to make it look good. So part of it is also going, uh, you know, cutting through some of the spin and trying to come up with what the real analysis is. And at the end of the day, it's really about human beings going to a movie theater to see a movie. Um, and so if you can kind of uh, break it down into whether films are working or not, whether they should work or not, um, you know, that's kind of how you can sort of do an unbiased mathematical look at it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, you know, what's interesting, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting about this, and we'll, we'll dive into all of this, but, you know, the thing that I don't feel like people perhaps give enough credence to is, is the amount of screens that movies open on, you know, it's like, I'm looking at the, you know, the, the top 20 some odd domestic grossing in in 1999. And, you know, obviously Star Wars is number one, but it opens on, you know, a little over 2,900 screens, but you have other movies lower down the list that opened on way more screens than that. Um, So it's, it's, it's just interesting to see how, I mean, I'm assuming that, it's a studio thing to a certain degree, you know, what, what access studios have to certain, um, to certain screens. Do you know how any of that works in terms of whether or not certain studios have, you know, access to more screens than others? Well, it certainly is a factor of the film and the studio. So, uh, the same studio, which might have 12 films in a year, um, you know, they might be different levels of demand for all of them. And so, um, that's one factor, um, you know, marketplace competition could be another factor. Obviously, with Star Wars, that was the most desired movie of the year. So they could have had any screen they wanted. Right. And obviously, in all the multiplexes, they could get a second, third, fourth screen and so on because of all the demand. So I think that at that time, the 3000 mark was kind of the benchmark for the A-list of big Hollywood films, give or take a hundred, give or take 200, right around that three, uh, 3000 mark. So with star Wars, I think uh, episode one, I think they certainly could have booked more theaters if they wanted to, but I think it was more about um, having the right theaters, having, you know, not booking theaters that might have um, lower levels of audio and visual presentation. Yeah. I I don't don't think that's something George Lucas wanted. So there might be uh, some theaters that they could easily have gotten, but were older and, you know, just wouldn't present the film very well. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they just uh, passed on a a number of uh, theaters in that case, uh, which, you know, brings it down to a little under 3000, but regardless of what the exact number is, um, you know, the top 2000, 2500 theaters are the ones who are going to do the mass amount of the gross anyway. So then it's after that, it's just a little bit of gravy. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So um, here's a, a question. Do you – was there – what's the movie that that's success surprised you the most or or the opposite of that? What movie failed that surprised you the most? Oh, boy. There were um, – I, I guess there were films on both sides. I think that um, as far as uh, – certainly one of the ones that really surprised me and surprised everyone was The Sixth Sense. You know, I mean, sure. I mean, at the beginning of the year, obviously, it wasn't really on anyone's radar as being a blockbuster. It was, um, at the time, the director wasn't really known, mm-hmm. not someone you would be looking for. Bruce Willis certainly was a star, sure. um, and he had been a star for a while, and he had action movies that worked, others that didn't work. So it wasn't until that movie opened uh, in early August of uh, that year that you had, obviously, with the twist ending, you had a lot of repeat business. So, um that film just took off like uh, like anything, just being number one week after week. Uh, a word of mouth hit. You know, this is before social media, so you'd have to use your old fashioned mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is really good, and you should go see it. And then uh, a lot of people who never saw it opening weekend would catch it on the second weekend. They would tell others, you know, the third weekend, kind of an old fashioned uh, sleeper hit with legs. And so, um, uh, even after the first two weeks or so, by sleeper legs standards, it, it would have gone on to do maybe half the business that it did. The fact that it kept going all through August, all through September into the fall, um, me- making almost $300 million was uh, astonishing. I mean, it was, the, it was the second highest grossing movie of the entire year. And even a few weeks or, you know, one week before that film opened, uh, you never thought that it would get anywhere close to that. In terms of a movie that wasn't successful, that you were surprised tanked? Well, you know, I think that uh, one that comes to mind is Wild Wild West. I think a lot of people have on it. So do I. Um, You know, here you have that star power uh, system working. Um, Will Smith, he had a lot of hits, uh, especially around the 4th of July time. This was the next one. Kind of the same genre of action, but kind of a new genre, mixing westerns in there, plus special effects and so on. So, And, and obviously, the music part, I mean, that's one of the things that he had uh, that a lot of A-listers didn't have, which is he could act, but he can also sing a song. You know, right, <laughs> I, sure. I put a song on, on your soundtrack. Uh, <clears throat> you're not seeing Tom Cruise do that, or Tom Hanks, and so on. Thankfully. So, um, <laughs> thankfully, exactly. So it looked like it, you hmm. know, Based on normal formulas, it should be an automatic blockbuster. And of course, we all know that it wasn't. Uh, much of that is because it wasn't a very entertaining film. Uh, but sometimes uh, mediocre films can overcome a lot of that and become blockbusters anyway. We see it all the time, even today. But that one uh, really just was not accepted. It was not uh, uh, something people enjoyed, not something people recommended to friends. And it was one of the tent poles. You know, it was one of those movies that was meant to lift the whole summer box office up. It was meant to scare other competitors away. And, uh, you know, it did about a fraction of the business that was expected. So that one was uh, the movie that kind of showed that this rising star known as Will Smith may not hit a home run each and every time. So when you, you had said, you know, based on the formulas, how much of that is art? How much of that is science? Um, you, you know what I mean by that? Uh, in terms of the box office? Yeah, like when you're projecting a box office number and you do that every week, um, what are you putting into that calculation? 
Well, I think there's a lot of factors um, because at the end of the day, you have to get into the head of the consumer at a specific moment in time. So the same exact film might perform differently at different times of the year uh, based on competition and so on. So, um, you know, I'm looking at uh, what the film brings to the table, uh, star power, genre, is it a part of a brand? Um, does it look good? The trailer, the TV commercials, uh, the social media buzz around it. Uh, are people getting excited? Uh, but also uh, competition in the marketplace. As great of a movie as you may have, the fact is that people have choices and they could go see something else, even though they want to see your movie. Um, so competition plays a factor as well. If you're a horror film and there were just two other horror films opening and didn't doing well, that's a factor. That could factor in. Um, so a lot of these things are, are part of the equation. Certainly reviews, um, as you know, people pay more and more attention now to a Rotten Tomatoes score mm-hmm. um, and overall metrics that are out there measuring all these kind of films and trying to decide whether or not to spend their time and money on something. And if it has a 55% score, then you know people sometimes hit the pause button. Um, unless there is a brand or a star involved, which, uh, you know, attracts them. So, so all, these are all, uh, different factors that can, uh, affect each film. Yeah. So I, I, the other thing that sort of we, as, as, you know, just people out in the world don't have access to, but their studios do tracking, right? Right. In terms of trying to sort of, uh, get, uh, gauge the public sentiment towards a film, whether the marketing is working, as you mentioned, whether or not enough people are talking about it online. I'm sure there's any number of companies that are paid lots of money to essentially pull movies to see how they're doing. Right, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, those numbers don't, generally speaking, get out into the out into the ether unless they're either exceedingly good or exceedingly bad, it seems. Um, so it's, it is it is interesting how, um, to Kenny's question about, you know, are we talking about science here or are we talking about just some sort of intangibility. Um, you know, the sixth sense certainly points towards the latter to a certain degree. You know, there's there there every now and then there's just a movie that just breaks all the rules. You know what I mean? Right, right. Sometimes they're there, and, and this will continue years into the future. I was going to um, ask: are there, Can you think of other movies that had kind of the sixth sense's trajectory, or or it's trajectory is kind of what I mean, but like kind of the the narrative around sixth sense where uh, came out of nowhere and just kept going and going until it was this monster yeah. hit. Well, there are a few movies over the decades that have done that. So, you know, one that comes to mind, which was, let's see, I guess it would be nine years before Sixth Sense was Home Alone. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a film which, you know, looked like it's a nice holiday family film, should do some decent business. But, uh, and, and I believe that was uh, 1990, towards yeah. the holiday season of 1990. And, you know, came out, did very well, but it had incredible legs, just staying at number one week after week. Um, you know, different genre, wasn't a scary film or anything, but uh, people loved it. Uh, and so you had the two-prong attack, the uh, word of mouth, which gets new people in, and the repeat business where people want to see it again and again. So, uh, you know, that's a film um, where if you look at the opening weekend versus the final gross, uh, you know, it's probably somewhere in the same ballpark as far as the longevity over many weeks and many months. Obviously, that movie was a little bit different in the sense that it had the holiday season, which changes the box office behavior a lot, uh, which it was able to take advantage of. But still, you know, you don't have legs on 
garbage films. You know, there's something there that people really like. Um, And whether it's critically acclaimed or not, it's entertaining to a large audience. Uh, Makes them want to see it again and again or tell other people to go see it. So, you know, Home Alone kind of comes to mind. There was another one, Look Who's Talking. That was a good leggy film, which has kind of uh, someone somewhat similar legs. Uh, Maybe not as the same, but, uh, you know, kind of close to it. Um, but then also yeah, the, the biggest one that always comes to mind, which you know, I don't think the Sixth Sense is in this ballpark, but certainly the first film since it to have any kind of ridiculous legs like this was, of course, Titanic. You know, uh, that's an anomaly. It's, it's one of a kind. You put it in a box by itself. Um, but that film, you know, running for uh, months and months, I think almost almost four months at number one um, and still going on to do record business uh you know that's sort of the definition of legs when it comes to the box office rewriting the rules and then that was uh, end of 97 into 98 and then a year later you have the sixth sense so that was kind of the first movie in 99 uh the sixth sense to sort of show us these amazing legs since titanic do you think that we could have any that there could be a movie that has that kind of those kind of legs today. I mean, you just had the Avengers become the world, the number one all time worldwide box office yeah. movie. Um, it did it in about six weeks. So it's just, Crazy. yeah, it, it is. Could, could something come out and just kind of, you know, it wouldn't be the, the 20 million. I, I'm pretty sure Titanic was kind of making 20 million every week, right? For about four months that it was this weird. Four. I mean, towards the end, it was down to the teens, but yeah, it was uh, it was breaking uh, thirty million per weekend for a while, and then still breaking twenty million uh, for a while, doing declines of you know ten percent, twelve percent, fifteen percent, week after week after week, which was unheard of. Um, as far as will we see that again? Honestly, I think anything's possible. It's sure. unlikely, but I think I think it's uh, it, it, it's I wouldn't rule it out. And has anything know? happened uh, like that since ninety nine? Anything even like within the you know, I don't think, uh, and yeah, I don't think. I mean, there have been a lot of leggy films here and there, uh, and sometimes these are films which might be Oscar contenders or films that fit and expand over time. Uh, not so much the studio films which start at two thousand, three thousand screens from day one. Um, it, it's it's incredibly hard to have that today, but I wouldn't say it's impossible because at the end of the day, you know, box office is a measurement of human behavior, and so. And any time there could be something which uh, uh, excites people to a certain extent where it could live on week after week after week and attract people. Um, obviously, today versus 20 years ago, you have a lot more entertainment options uh, than we did back then. You've got it at the palm of your hand everywhere you go. So it makes it much more difficult to do that. But, um, you know, that's what these kind of movies are. It's it's a film that comes out of left field. It's something which you don't think or plan to be that kind of a hit. I mean, Avengers Endgame was always intended to be one of the top five grossing mm-hmm. films of all time. Uh, globally, with today's prices, it, it's become the number one film. But um, kind of like Titanic versus Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, uh, you know, Phantom Menace was never expected to do those Titanic legs. You know, it was always going to have the first uh, weekend um, Star Wars fan base coming out in big numbers up front. Um, 
Uh, so it's kind of a different model of grosses than Titanic was. So there could be, you know, one day there could be a film which comes out and just really connects with human beings, uh, whether it's domestically or all around the world, and just keeps playing and playing uh, for some reason. It's 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 so much harder to do that, but I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, it does feel like a lot of it too is obviously is based on release date. I think that if you're a if you're a Christmas release or a fall release. I think that the likelihood that you can have, you know, the legs you're speaking of going into the top of the year is a little easier. I mean, the, the reality is that there's no quote unquote downtime anymore in the year. There used to sort of be, as you know, there used to be, you know, you had your summer hits, you had your holiday hits. Um, but now you've got movies that are released in February or March that are, you know, that are just as they're basically summer movies. It's just summer exactly. time. So it does. Mm-hmm. It does feel like you know your your Christmas releases now. I mean, the the, the big ones that jump out at me are, are uh, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, which had crazy legs that they weren't expecting that to be as success, as successful as it was. I mean, obviously you have Avatar also being released in the around Christmas. So it does feel like um, that's a, a a a part of the equation that I think changes yeah. things a little bit. Well, I think if you have if you have a good film and you know studios know well in advance how how good the film is and whether to place it in there in the first place. Um, and so if, if they have, for example, Jumanji, which was, I think it was maybe right, two right, years right. ago. Um, that, that's a film which had better legs than expected, but yeah, I think so. It's a better movie than it has. <laughs> it's a much better yeah, movie well, than it needed to be. Well, well the, the people who see the early cuts, who know whether it's good or not, um, you know, they can make that calculated risk. Uh, you know what? We should go into a crowded Christmas time because even if it doesn't open like gangbusters, once the word gets out, people are going to catch it later, uh, later on, which is exactly what happened with that film. Um, and so if you have a good movie and you're placing it into December, I mean, I always say that uh, 11 months of the year behave one way and then December behaves differently uh, as far as the box office goes. Um, yeah, people it, are busy in the first part of the month with holiday activities and end of year and all of that. And then once you get closer to the uh, end of December, uh, schools letting out, colleges letting out, um, people not having to work as much and having more leisure time. Uh, between Christmas and New Year's, every day is a Saturday at the mm-hmm. box office. And so you have tremendous uh, potential. Uh, even if you open very low, you've got all these days ahead of you where you can still finish your gross at four or five, maybe six times what your opening weekend was um, again, if, if, if it's a good film and people find time. So as long as it's a, it's a pretty decent film or better and you open in the pre Christmas time frame, you're going to have a good run into mid January, maybe even late January. But if you can keep running past that, then that's when you have a real leggy hit on your hands. It, it, it's funny. You talk about sort of the, the Christmas season and, you know, families and people going to see things, you know, the, the, the most recent one that kind of jumps out at me is uh, the greatest showman. Oh yeah. The greatest showman. You know what I mean? Which like, and that was at the same time as Jumanji. So that was a lot of competition. Right. Uh, there were certainly people interested in both and a lot of people have found the time and the money to see both. Yeah. I mean, and you've got like, I, I remember Greatest showman opens to, I think it was like under 20 or around 20 and everyone's like, Oh, they're going to take a yeah, bath on it's this. It's a bomb. Thing. Yeah. And then it makes 20, 25 for six weeks. It went, I believe it went up in its second week. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the soundtrack was a big deal for it and that helped and people really yeah, liked the soundtrack. It, it, and, yeah. I, I think there was a lot there. I remember see, I, I, just to be truthful, I'm not a big fan of movie musicals at all. I, very few. Oh, Gatesh, you're missing out. <laughs> so it, it's it's really hard to win me over on a musical. And so, the what's your what's your favorite? There must be something that you like. 
You know, uh, I, I, I'm not, I haven't made a list of favorites, but one musical which I did like was Dreamgirls. Okay, yeah. Um, and part of that is because a lot of the singing is um, sort of in concert, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the musicians and then sure. the singers sort of performing in a concert, not so much in the middle of a scene, suddenly they're singing. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that one I comes to mind. Plus, I love Eddie Murphy, and so he, was, he had such a different role, and he was really good in that. So that comes to mind. So, so having said that, going into Greatest Showman, I honestly did not want to see it. And so uh, I was invited to an early screening, I think at the beginning of December. And it was also around my wife's birthday. So, and she really wanted to see that movie. So I said, fine. I'll go hang out with her. Check, yeah, we'll go <laughs> check out this uh, early screening of the film. And, you know, I came out of it, uh, you know, not the way I didn't love the film. But I didn't really feel the way I normally do about musicals and about you know uh, that sort of genre. Uh, I liked it more than I normally would. And then I think a week or two later was the regular press screening, which I was able to bring my kids to. So the four of us went, uh, two of us seeing it again, and then my kids seeing it for the first time. Um, and they loved the genre. And uh, you know I was kind of hesitant. I'm not sure if I could sit through this a second time. And then I saw it a second time, and I enjoyed it again and it, and it kind of grew on me and over time the songs grew on me um I, I to this day i still listen to them and so it took a little time to work on me someone who's just a bad example of someone you should target for a movie like that but if it could win me over it won over a lot of other people too and again you know and, and that's part of the time factor uh it's not necessarily something which should be opening big because it's not a big brand uh, it's uh, not something you need to rush out right away. So I think they knew with that low opening weekend that this was a patience film. Um, once Christmas came, once the target audience had more time off, once they heard from six, seven, eight friends who did see it, uh, the money would start rolling in. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I had a very similar experience with that movie. I remember seeing it and thinking uh, – because I saw it late with my kids. I think the fact that they were doing the sing-alongs um, maybe three, four weeks after it made me think – there's that something there's something there. there. Yeah. there there's at least a passionate fan base here already. Right. And I saw it with my kids and we liked it. My kids are seven. And then we never stopped singing the songs. <laughs> yeah. And, They're very catchy. Yeah. And we've watched it on uh, on iTunes a couple of times. And, um, and, and now all of a sudden we went and saw a sing-along screening eight months later. So, right. uh, yeah. It's that, a, it's a, it, was, it turned so into it was a phenomenon. It's like a it. movie earworm. So, um, looking at the at the ninety nine domestic grosses, there's there's you want to give a, out you want to give the top ten? Uh, sure, I'll give I'll give the top sure. ten. Uh, Star Wars Episode One, Phantom Menace, Sixth Sense, Toy Story Two, Austin Powers, Spy Who Shagged Me, The Matrix, Tarzan, Big Daddy, The Mummy, Runaway Bride, Blair Witch Project, and the one that jumps out at me honestly, and and yes, I know sequels, you know, are sequels, but Austin Powers being number four on that list is is a staggering number for that movie 200 over, over 200 yeah. million domestic over 200 million domestic that the original film is truly kind of a bit of a sleeper hit it's not like doesn't take the world by storm by any means it's hard to even call it a hit it didn't make that much money it's just shocking to me it's i and and this is something i i'm curious uh on your thoughts on that to me screams uh second life on video that's exactly what i was going to say is that for the uh, first there are movie. some yeah. films yeah. like that 
Uh, and, and, you know, some of those films never got a sequel. And, and so video is where people found them and that's it. But Austin Powers, you know, the first one came out. It did, I think, a little over 50 million total, yep. uh, which was OK. It was pretty decent, you know, for an original film low and budget. all of that. Yeah, it's pretty low budget. Yeah, yeah, low budget, you know, not a lot of risk. And so they did OK with it. Respectable numbers. But uh, certainly in the couple of years that passed. Uh, you know, people watched it on video, on cable TV, uh, wherever. And, you know, it, they really got into that uh, character. You know, later on, people would get into Borat and imitate Borat yeah. and all that. But back then, you had Austin Powers. Uh, people would imitate the character, do all the little one-liners and the jokes. And so it was building up that uh, fan base, uh, which the sequel would take advantage of. And I remember, uh, you know, in some of the marketing materials, I vividly remember in 99, when, you know, the summer box office obviously was about the Phantom Menace and they would run, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trailer, run ads for Austin Powers saying, if you see only one movie this summer, see Star Wars, but <laughs> if you see two movies this summer, yep. go see The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yep. Uh, and so it's kind of a nod to the obvious blockbuster in the room, which no one's going to miss. Um, and it turned out to be this, uh, you know, massive uh, hit number four for the year, but also, uh, I guess you can say number three among the summer films, Sixth Sense, which was a big surprise. Uh, you know, you, you sort of take that out, which was not expected. Uh, Austin Powers was, uh, you know, kind of the second biggest movie of the summer and certainly the highest grossing comedy of the summer. When people wanted to laugh, that's where everyone went. It's 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 crazy. You know, Ken, Kenny and I did an episode on, on Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, relatively early in the run of this podcast, probably in the, I don't know, mid thirties or something. I like think that. earlier than that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we both sort of, we went through various machinations of hating it. And then by the end of it, somehow convinced each other that it actually wasn't that bad. Uh, and it's, it's a very odd movie, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like it is, yeah. it's, it's filled with scatological humor and James Bond jokes. And I mean, just, and, and old sixties, British spy movies. Like it, it, it's yeah. crazy to me that that thing was the sensation that it was. It's it's amazing. It's funny. Like the thing of like the thing about Spy Shag means. Right, so I think the original Austin Powers International Man of Mystery is a it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a great movie. It's so good. And the expectations for Spy Who Shagged Me off International Man of Mystery for those of us who were fans were sky high. And I saw that movie in the theater and I hated it. <laughs> and I always thought it was terrible. And we just did this podcast and we just started <laughs> quoting back and forth lines. It's still funny. So uh, I yeah. think that, you know, kind yeah. of speaking to your, you know, your point about Home Alone and all these movies, um, they don't make money unless they're, unless they, they do something for somebody. Yeah. And they have to resonate with people. And, and, you know, that's kind of where the repeat business comes in. And, you know, when it comes to competition, another factor that was working in its favor was the fact that everybody was scared of Phantom Menace. So Phantom Menace came out in the middle of May, a week before Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, every studio just steered clear for weeks because they did not want to get flattened Wimps. by this, this mega hit that was coming. <laughs> and so Austin Powers was really the first major kind of uh, exciting event movie to come along after Phantom Menace, which might have been in week five maybe at that time when Austin Powers came. So people were ready yep. for the next big thing. And it was right there at the right time. Sometimes timing is everything. So I, I, I want to talk about Phantom Menace yeah, yeah. because for the third highest grossing movie of all time at the time and second highest worldwide, almost made a billion dollars worldwide. 
it was viewed by some people as a disappointment. And it made I, it made sixty eight million in its opening weekend. And you had written the weekend before that people were some people. I'm not saying you, but some people were were saying this could make a hundred million dollars this weekend. Um, and the conservative estimates seemed to be more in the area of eighty. So when it made sixty eight million over three days, now it wasn't its three day opening. It opened on a Wednesday, but I'm talking Friday to, to Sunday. Um, was that viewed as a disappointment? What was the overall box office for Star Wars viewed as a disappointment? Well, I would say, uh, it, you know, the, the 64 and change number for the Friday to Sunday, which, as you mentioned, were days three, day four and five. Um, I, I think that was, you know, a little less than what we kind of thought, given the hype, the sky high hype that it was. Now, obviously, because with the Wednesday opening, it kind of changes things around because that big upfront audience is not part of the weekend box office. It's on Wednesday. And so that changed things. And I think that, um, you know, part of it is that you had some hardcore fans who were probably never going to be satisfied with what this new generation of uh, prequels were about to give because, you know, it's not about Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and so on. Um, so I, I think the movie creatively was setting itself for a little bit of disappointment because it was delivering something uh, different, even though the special effects might be more modern uh, story-wise, it was mostly new characters. And so, you know, who knew whether all the millions of fans would accept it or not. You know, I, like a lot of people, you know, I was not a big fan of the film. I saw it once in theaters back then. And then I honestly never watched the whole movie again until a couple of years ago when I was in a hotel in India and it was on TV and I ended up just kind of watching it and realizing that it was even worse than I remembered. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my experience. Exactly. Was, wow. I can't believe it. You know, I, now I understand why I never watched it a second time. And, you know, you can say what you want about the prequels, episodes one, two, and three. I thought that, you know, two, I liked better. Not a great film, but still, I liked it better. And then three, I liked even more. Um, but uh, as far as films to revisit, I've never really had too much of an interest in revisiting the first three episodes uh, since then. But at the time, you know, part of what it was, it was almost a Star Wars for a new generation. So, and, and the box office numbers proved that because once you had the five day opening weekend out of the way, and then the second weekend was a holiday. So you have the first 12, 13 days, the first two weeks, uh, a lot of time for people to go and see the film and all the fans to see it multiple times and then get it out of the way. If you look from week three onwards at the numbers, I remember every weekend when the numbers would come out, I would look at the ratios of Friday to Saturday. And when you see a big pop on Saturday, bigger than the other films, usually that means that it's a family audience, it's kids who are in school Monday through Friday. Saturday is, is a very popular time to bring your kids to the movies. And so Tell as the movie it. got older, yeah, as the movie got older and you know the, the hardcore fan base had you know come and gone, um, you know, this movie was doing about 25, 26% of the whole weekend business on Friday. That kind of number tells you that so much of it was on Saturday and Sunday. Um, so for the younger generation, under 14, under 12, uh, you know, it really connected with them week after week. There was a lot of repeat business from the tween audience, from, you know, the, the central character is a young boy. And so for the kids who were younger, who were not alive when the first Star Wars movies were in theaters, uh, this was their Star Wars, and a lot of them came out over and over again, propelling it to uh, you know 431 million. Which uh, I remember another box office um, 
sort of narrative that was going around was, oh, this movie must be able to be Titanic. And I never thought it was going to be Titanic. Obviously, it's a whole different way of making money. Um, this one was, was always going to be more upfront. But it actually had some pretty good legs for a summer tentpole uh, branded kind of a film. So to finish off at over 400 worldwide, I think it was over 900. Uh, you know, I think those are fantastic numbers. Could it have been more? Of course. But uh, based on what the movie was and based on how many of the fans were satisfied versus not satisfied, I think they ended up with some uh, some fabulous numbers. I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that people were expecting it to be Titanic. And I, I remember buying the Vanity Fair uh, that came out that was sort of uh, the first photos that, of, from set that uh, mm-hmm. Annie Leibovitz took. And the pull quote in one of the sort of full page photos was, uh, it's the film to most likely dethrone Titanic. And I, I just think they didn't do themselves any favors by doing stuff like that. I, I think that, um, and, and I even honestly, when Force Awakens came out, I they, everyone knew the movie was going to be successful. It wasn't a matter of if it was, you know, if it was going to, work or not. Um, but when you start putting sort of bullseyes on films and stuff like that, I think you're just doing yourself a huge disservice and you're just, you're, cause you're going to, it, it's just, it's unnecessary. And I think in the box office game, um, that we all love to sort of watch and, 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 uh, you know, dissect, it, it just feels like the, the, the braggarts tend not to work out. I mm-hmm. feel like. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's right. I think uh, I, I think that um, a lot of the studios have uh, come over to the side of being more cautious. And, and I think you know, unnecessary is a good way to describe it because, um, you know, there's nothing to be gained by telling people in advance that your movie is going to break X, Y, Z record. If it happens, just be patient, wait a couple of days and it happens naturally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Then we'll know exactly, did it beat the record by 5%, by 45%, or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, I get, um, you know, the PR spin from studios every day, every week, year after year. And, uh, you know, people are very cautious all the time. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'll get emails from studios trying to downplay expectations, trying to give uh, numerical ranges. You know, we think this movie will open in the 15 to 20 million area this weekend. And, you know, the way I read that is they obviously think it's going to open north of 20 million because they're giving low expectations to the media. And so you have to sort of go based on your own gut of what a movie might do. Um, but at the end of the day, the box office is a surprising business. I mean, uh, there are surprises every year. There will continue to be. And I think that's one of the more exciting things because, again, it's, it's, it's up to the people at the end of the day. It's, it's the voting and it's the people who vote and, they can often vote unexpectedly and polls can often be wrong. And, um, you know, you have to wait until the numbers come in and you start to see what did people enjoy and what did people go out and, uh, and see. And so, uh, I think studios, uh, for a while now have been trying to be cautious. And I think as a reporter, as an analyst who covers the box office, you have to be able to read between the lines and, uh, not fall for a lot of the lower expectations game that goes on. I think there's also uh, – there, there really can't be enough said for marketing and just how vitally, vitally important it is. I'm looking at sort of you – know, I'm looking at a list of the biggest flops of, of 1999 and, you know, and, and Fight Club is up there. You know, it, it only makes 37 domestic. You know, that, that is – for a movie with Brad Pitt in it and Edward Norton who 
you know, certainly was his star was on the rise. You know, David Fincher's follow up to um to the game. I think it's the game, but you know, pretty it's, pretty hot off seven too. I just remember those posters so vividly and having no idea what the hell this movie was about. Soap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It looks like a poster for soap. Yeah, uh, real kind of soap. Um, soap but, made you, from you know, human fat. What, what's interesting about the late '90s is that uh, you know Brad Pitt. Uh, it took him a while to become a box office star. He was a star for a while, mm-hmm. but as far as translating that to actual box office numbers, it took him a while to really come up with some big numbers. So if you look at a lot of his films, um, even Seven, you know, he and Morgan Freeman were the anchors of that. Uh, yeah, it didn't really open all that well. I mean, it did respectable numbers, but he wasn't really someone who was opening big films. It, he, there were constant comparisons in the 90s, uh, mid-90s and late-90s, between Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Yeah. You know, it was always, he's the next Tom Cruise and so on. But you know, Tom Cruise's numbers were at a higher level, and Brad Pitt took a long while. He had film after film. Uh, it took a while to really get to the point where he's actually opening a film. Especially when he's by himself. I mean, Ed Norton at the time, well-respected actor, but was pretty much zero when it comes to box office pull. Sure. You can't count him to really open a film. So that one was on Brad Pitt as kind of the only star of the film. Um, and it did sort of Brad Pitt numbers for the time. You know, He wasn't really uh, doing a whole lot more on his own uh, back then. But were- of course, obviously, it would become a cult hit and become a very popular film across a lot of people. Yeah. So there were a lot of, I mean, I think stars kind of had different currency back then than they do today. Um, they do have some. I mean, there's some stars that can open movies, obviously. But, uh, you know, you note here in your, you did a, a recap of 1999 movies and, or the 1999 box office. And you know that there were a lot of star driven bombs. I'm going to run through a few of them. Yeah. Um, Harrison Ford was in Random Hearts, which bombed. Robinson, Robin Williams, Jacob the Liar. I'd also include Bicentennial Man in that. Uh, Jim Carrey, Man on the Moon. We just mentioned Brad Pitt. Uh, Jodie Foster and Anna and the King. Kevin Costner for The Love of the Game. Clint Eastwood's True Crime. Michelle Pfeiffer, The Deep End of the Ocean. Sharon Stone's Gloria and Nicolas Cage are both 8mm and Bringing Out the Dead. So what do you think that said about um, where stars were at the time, where these actors were at the time, um, and kind of the the star system back then? And then we could talk about some of the, the the contrary examples, like how Julia Roberts was able to take – yeah, two movies to the top twelve. One of which is a masterpiece. The other of which is Runaway Bride. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, you know overall the star system was was stronger back then than it is today. I mean, today it's um, you know uh, I would say it's a fraction of what it used to be. Uh, most of the history of the box office up until maybe the two thousands at some point. You have uh, stars who really open films. And while uh, that list you read from, I think, a story I probably wrote 20 years ago, 20 I guess. 20 years ago, yeah. And it's all correct. All these stars had flops. Um, but the counter to that is that you can also make a list of a lot of big commercial hits from different stars, um, like Julia Roberts and others who had hits. Um, uh, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler, which is, for think, sure. Was open, you know, as a new star and so on. So, so you know, the movie-going behavior, which is, hey, so-and-so has a new movie, I need to go see it. That whole behavior has changed a lot. It's diminished. Um, That type of thinking has shifted over to brands. So it's more about, oh, this franchise, this brand has a new movie, I need to go see it. So, um, you know, 
But back then, you could point to a lot of films where people did go for the stars, and oftentimes it's uh, it's not even a sequel. So you have um, actors just, especially with comedies, you know, like with Jim Carrey, uh, he had a couple of sequels, but for the most part, he would come out with movie after movie, mm-hmm. uh, year after year from 94 onwards, and the box office behavior was, hey, Jim Carrey has a new movie, it's got to be funny, let's go see it. And so with a couple of misses here and there, still he had mostly big hits time and time again. Of course, Adam Sandler would go on to do uh, similar things. Tom Cruise for a long time, uh, you know, it wasn't about um, a sequel. It was about, hey, the new Tom Cruise movie's out. And maybe he jumps genre to genre. Will Smith would go on to do that and so on. Uh, Tom Hanks, of course, always for a long time had that. So it was certainly in 99, it was much more of a star driven kind of a business and i would say what might have um been a component in shifting that was at the end of 2001 and that's really when you had these harry potter and lord of the rings franchises begin Mm. and you know of course they had well-respected stars but they they weren't stars that opened films you know you didn't really go to a movie to see any one particular actor um they were based on great literary works that had so many fans, uh, actors who were good at their craft, if not marquee names, you know, well, not marquee names, um, and good filmmaking, or at least, uh, you know, entertaining filmmaking for the masses. And um, moving forward from there, you started to see more and more of these uh, brands turn into movie franchises. And obviously, in parallel with, with the rise of different superhero brands mm-hmm. uh interchangeable actors who you know some had different levels of star power to begin with but people came for the heroes and the characters so uh you know i think 1999 was kind of the tail end of the star driven era when you know actors could come out with anything any kind of new story and new movie um and would bring people out even though you know you're not going to hit a home run every time sometimes there's uh, going to be a bunch of strikeouts too so who today, if there is anybody, would you consider a star who um, whose value add to the box office? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, I think the list is getting smaller and smaller. I mean, certainly, I w- as far as like um, a durable star over many years, uh, Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. uh, time and time again, uh, almost always sells. I mean, sometimes he has smaller, quirky films that are more independent feeling and so on. But his commercial films, each time, uh, it is pretty consistent. 
Uh, even Liam Neeson was for a while until yeah. the last couple of years. He's kind of uh, tapered off, and it's uh, you know people are past the same thing over and over again. Um, but you know some of the older stars work, I think, because um, the older moviegoers are more used to that world of going out to see this star's latest film, even if it's not a sequel. I think Denzel Washington did his first sequel ever, or one of his only sequels. The second Equalizer? I mean, he pretty much does not do sequels. I mean, that's unheard of nowadays. And he doesn't do um, uh, superhero movies either. That's very rare to find that. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, He had, since Titanic, he could have done anything. But he made a choice to stick with um, working with some of the top directors, and you know he had that pull. He could he could you know say no to fifteen scripts if he wanted to, and wait until Martin Scorsese or Spielberg is free and has a project that would work for him. Um, so he would have gaps in his career when he wouldn't have a film come out, and he would wait and you know do the right project with top level filmmakers that he wanted to work with, and so um, you know. There were some misses here and there, but most of them um, have been done, doing pretty well at the box office. Uh, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino movie, I think it's the second film with him. Um, yeah, you is. know that's done some very good numbers for, especially today, for an original film um, and an R-rated film. I think it was one of the biggest R-rated openings of this year so far, maybe the second biggest or third biggest. So um, you know he's still selling pretty well, uh, which is amazing because. You know, uh, we still remember him as the Titanic boy, you know, the guy who was this uh, big teen heartthrob who went on to become, uh, you know, one of the two stars of the biggest movie of all time. Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio, it's 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 sticking with him. Um, it's incredible. Even into his 70s. 40s, he's, it, it still does kind of feel like he's our kid who's growing up yeah. before our eyes as he plays an aging movie star in this big movie. <laughs> Um, I can't believe Leonardo DiCaprio is at the point of his career that he can play a has-been. It's, <laughs> but I, you know, yeah, I, it's, I don't know. We, we, I, I think there are very, very few movie stars right now that get people in seats. I think we're in a, we're in an IP driven world now, franchise driven world. And it feels like that's the name of the game. Yeah. And there is something to be said for, you know, Denzel Washington is kind of his own little brand. Right. And Liam Neeson for a time. Like it's funny because we, we have uh, a movie that did pretty well in 1999 was, um, Double Jeopardy. Very well. And Double Jeopardy was kind of, um, Ashley Judd's brand. Mm -hmm. And Ashley Judd had four or five movies that were Ashley Judd movies, almost like these proto, uh, Liam Neeson movies where right star, right genre, right moment could open a movie. And I think that that still does kind of happen here and there, but we, you almost Leonardo DiCaprio might be the last guy I can think of who can open any kind of movie, you know, um, Denzel can't open fences, right? Like fences isn't going to make a lot of money. You, you were saying there, he does kind of, yeah, some stuff. He might do something more for awards or critical attention, not mm-hmm. so much for the commercial side, but the movies where he gets the big paycheck, uh, those are, you know, and often he plays, uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. or the anti hero or, you know, the certain, um, zone that really kind of sells. Um, you know, he has uh, pretty consistent numbers, uh, across the last maybe 15 years or so. Yeah. It's, it's like and a quote unquote Denzel movie. Yeah. I think, um, you know, 
I think Angelina Jolie is weirdly close to that. She doesn't do a lot, but when, you know, she had, she certainly had a moment where she was bulletproof and she could basically open anything. Definitely. Yeah. She wanted and movies like that. She had a wanted lot of salt and, and, you know, even Maleficent. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Maleficent was before this whole run. It wasn't really the mm-hmm. slam dunk these live action Disney movies are. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be very curious to see how the sequel does. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, I guess the question I, I have for you is, you know, with your perspective on sort of all of cinema in terms of box office over the last, you know, let's just say 20, 30 years, you know, do you think that we are going to hit a saturation point with comic book movies? Do we think that what Marvel has created in its cinematic universe is even – is it even remotely possible for it to fail at this and, point? And as a and as a – Kind of a secondary question on that. Um, talk about Dark Phoenix a little bit too. Is that is that a canary in the coal mine, or is that just kind of a um, is that just an aberration? Well, I think with Dark Phoenix, you have um, a couple of things. First of all, the previous film Apocalypse, um, you know, rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, some people, you know, weren't all that excited about it. It was the third film with that cast, and so a lot of fans said, "Okay, well, we don't really want another one." with a lot of the same actors. And so they made another one and, um, you know, not the best film. So the reviews had an impact on it, um, as well as maybe a downward trajectory after the previous film. So uh, like with these branded films, if you have one movie, which doesn't really excite people, the next one might suffer. So that was going to happen anyway. And then if you don't really over deliver, then, it could, it could easily be skippable. And, and that's the big fear for filmmakers is, am I making a film which is skippable? And the truth is, every movie is skippable. You don't have to see any movie, whether it's Avengers or Titanic or Avatar or whatever. Every movie can be skipped. Um, I know many filmmakers don't want to hear that. Many actors don't want to hear that. But the truth is, every film is skippable. So then the question is, how can I make my film not skippable to be something which people have to go see right away? Um, with the X-Men brand, I'm sure over time they'll reboot it and integrate it, and uh, chances are it'll it'll be fine, it'll be good, possibly fantastic, who knows. Um, but uh, as far as the Marvel brand and superhero movies, you know, uh, every genre eventually kind of fizzles out. Uh, that's sort of the logical way to look at it. I think the MCU has had such a long streak of quality uh, which is the backbone of the success. If, if you make a good film, then a stinker, then a good film, then a stinker is kind of inconsistent. Um, you know, the fans are not truly engaged on a macro level, but with the MCU, every single film is just sort of, you know, creatively uh, really works and is really engaging. And of course they specifically have made this interconnecting soap opera where you have to sort of watch every installment. Um, to get the bigger picture. And, and, you know, that was not done by accident. That, that helps, uh, uh, it, it helps moviegoers to get more engaged in the storylines. And of course it helps the bottom line as well. So, you know, with the next phase of movies coming from Marvel, I think they've earned the right to have, um, the benefit of the doubt that the, they're going to have more and more quality films that are going to work. Um, you know, Black Widow and Beyond, and Doctor Strange, and all the other films that are coming, as well as the ones which are still untitled, but we know will be, you know, I'm sure a Black Panther sequel is coming, and more and more sequels are coming, and what they'll do with Thor, and this and that, all of it's coming. So, you know, they, they're at a point where um, 
you know, over time you have these bulletproof franchises. Uh, eventually there's something which doesn't work, but uh, so far they haven't hit it yet. It's crazy. I think most people have kind of forgotten So they'll never die. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're never dying. So you, you said bulletproof. The only other genre that is close to bulletproof is horror where shitty horror movies can come out and have $20 million weekends or more. Um, yeah, but is that because the overhead is lower? That's just a preamble to a question. Uh, <laughs> so, that's Fair a enough. segue. Um, so uh, this, I think this kind of started or feels like this started, you know, to some extent with scream, but yeah. the, the kind of other pull here was Blair, Witch, which was a 1999 movie and its own kind of, unicorn in terms of the box office so uh what what were kind of what was going on with Blair Witch and what were you all think by you all I mean you but box office watchers thinking as this little movie um this little what thirty thirty five thousand dollar movie made a hundred million dollars yeah yeah that was I mean, I, I would put that in the same category as a sixth sense in in terms of being not just a surprise but a mega surprise you know um, maybe even more so because it was such a low budget project from a bunch of nobodies, you know, uh, at least six cents had a Bruce Willis an established star in there and a big studio and all that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is a film where, you know, the buzz kind of started in the indie film world. Uh, is this movie real? Is it not real? Uh, did these, you know, people on screen really have to suffer like this? What happened to them? There was a lot of that mystery, which really helped uh, in the first wave. And the first wave would be your independent film lovers, your, uh, the ones who really like, uh, uh, envelope pushing cinema, new stories. Um, and so, you know, I remember it coming out and having some fantastic Perth theater averages, you know, it was sold out. You couldn't get in. Um, and of course that helps, uh, the buzz, you know, when you can't get into something, Hey, you want to see it even more. Um, and so it grew from there and then they eventually expanded and went nationwide. And it was kind of a, uh, national phenomenon for a short window of time. It eventually faded out and was not the sixth sense kind of legs there, but, uh, in the time when it was really hot, it was making a lot of money. Um, and eventually people moved past it. But as far as, you know, there's a lot of coverage about profitability, and it's one of the most profitable movies of all time, maybe the most profitable movie of all time. But, you know, that's an example of, you know, the impossible happening. And, and that's something yeah. that we see at the box office is something which on paper does not make any sense at all. But, uh, you know, with the right timing and the right marketing, the right distribution, everything kind of comes into place and clicks at the same time. You have this cultural phenomenon. And I think going back to your question about, you know, will we see this sort of thing again and, and so on? Um, if we see these kind of legs and these kind of crazy numbers again, it's going to come from a surprise cultural phenomenon. You know, uh, movies which are planned to be big make a lot of money, but they fade away. And that's just how they're meant to be done. But these kind of films, which are not on the radar are not supposed to be hits, but kind of come out of somewhere and really connect with people. Um, you know, someone runs away to the bank with this. So, you know, that, I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast about this year and, and we're so fascinated is, you know, not only the, the great movies that we both, you know, admire so much, but there are so many of these unusual stories like a sixth sense, like a Blair, Witch. um, another one is the matrix for us. 
You know, there yes. Matrix is one of the very few um, movies that can, that came that has come out in my lifetime that actually started a franchise from scratch. Uh, right. sh- surely, uh, because of the quality of the movie, yeah, it's uh, perfect. It was just a, it, just <laughs> the, the quality of it. So. Yeah. Um, do you remember the expectations of that movie? When we did our podcast on it, it was about six months ago, maybe not that much, three months ago, something like that. Um, when we did our podcast, it wasn't even, it was June. So when we did this, when we did this very recently. That was a journey we just, uh, yeah, very recently we did this podcast. It feels like six months because, you know, we did six podcasts today. Might have been uh, red pill while you were doing it. We were, we were just, yeah. just chewing red pills. Um, we were trying to remember exactly what the expectations were for this movie because, you know, obviously Keanu Reeves' star had faded significantly and he was the sixth or seventh or twelfth choice for this role and the, the marketing was terrible for this movie and the title is terrible and everything about it just kind of screams flops. Do you remember what was going on with this movie? Well, I can tell you what my – pre-release uh prediction was uh for the opening weekend it was 15 million dollars and it ended up doing almost double that mm-hmm. uh almost 28 million over the weekend and then it opened on a wednesday so it made um over 37 million over the five days or so so it definitely uh came in with lowered expectations i mean it looked like a fun action movie uh the marketplace was kind of dead at the time, so it didn't take a lot to hit number one when it came out. And people were looking for, you know, something new and exciting to see. But, you know, I, I do think, aside from the fact, not, not taking anything away from The Matrix, it was a amazing box office achievement of what it did. Um, but I do consider it to be one of this sort of um, uh, what I call appetizer films. Uh, there are two or three of these, or maybe three of these action films, which came out in the period before Phantom Menace. So, you know, Phantom Menace was talked about for over a year. Everyone knew when it was coming out. There was so much demand. People needed to see it right away, but you couldn't because you had to wait until the middle of May. So I think studios are kind of smart knowing that, listen, we'll get trampled on after Phantom Menace, but if we can come into the marketplace before, when you have all these action fans just salivating, waiting for their big um, entree, their big steak that they want to get their teeth into, but they can't have it, at least the appetizer can kind of, uh, you know, you can capture some business there from people who want something now to fill them up right now. And so The Matrix was the first film to kind of do that as far as really strong overperforming numbers. And then you later had um, uh, Entrapment, which is a movie which is mostly forgotten, but it did not by us. (laughs) (laughs) It it did a lot more than it should have. Uh, but but then the big one after that, which was I think two weeks before Phantom Menace, was The Mummy, which was supposed to be you know a hit movie in the early May period, but it overperformed based on what it should have done. And, and I think part of that was this sort of hunger for Phantom Menace and uh, action fans, uh, you know, going in and sort of satisfying their needs for a little bit with these other movies. Having said that, uh, The Matrix uh, stands differently in the sense that it was this original film which became a pop culture um uh sensation which you cannot say about entrapment or the mummy those are kind of uh short-term forgettable films uh but the matrix you know people really got into it a great story um a star who may or may not sell you don't really know he's not known for a bankable consistent 
uh, uh, series of films at that time. And it worked. Great word of mouth. People went and checked it out. They would debate the story a lot, talk about it a lot. And of course, as we know, they would go on to make uh, back-to-back sequels that would come out later. Um, but The Matrix was certainly one of the more uh, groundbreaking and influential films of 1999 because, of course, in the years that follow, we would always see these action movies and say, oh, that they're doing The Matrix special effects there. Yeah. As a as a fan, or a, you, I know on Twitter, at least, you have kind of, you know, quick bite reviews that are kind of you know reviews to movies right. you've seen but also how you know they project to the box office so clearly you're also a movie fan um do you have favorite movies from 1999 just personal favorites yeah you know what one that comes to mind um i don't know if it's my number one favorite of that year there were a lot of good films that year but uh one film that came out in 1999 and is one of my all-time favorites was a complete box office flop it went nowhere um but I can watch it. I can drop everything and watch it at any time is office space. Oh, it's the best. (laughs) Um, And, you know, on paper, I can see why uh, people would not buy tickets and go see it opening weekend in the movie theater. But it was, uh, you know, such a great film. So many quotable lines. Um, You saw that in 99 and held that opinion. Cause that is kind of one of those leggy DVD movies. It definitely is. A lot of people, uh, obviously, it didn't work at the box office. So later on, on DVD, Comedy Central would find it on cable and so on. Um, But when I saw it up front um, uh, in the beginning, I really, really uh, took to it right away. Are there others that you can remember? From that year? Yeah. Uh, Let's see. As far as, you know... All-time favorites, definitely not Phantom Menace. I'll, I'll, I'll see that. <laughs> uh, the first Matrix definitely stands as a, a movie that uh, you know comes back as one of my favorite films of that year. Um, you know, a, a, another film which was uh, kind of interesting um, uh, that I thought was uh, uh, <laughs> this is kind of weird. Uh, Varsity Blues. Uh, not that it's sure. one of my favorite movies of all time, but I remember that uh, I, I I went to a junket for it, and I got a free Nerf football. <laughs> That'll do it every Swag. time. Nerf football. Um, you know, interviewing the actors who were mostly unknown at the time. But when uh, you know someone's giving you some swag and so on, oh wow, a Nerf football. Okay, this is uh, something interesting. I'll take uh, I'll take a look at it. <laughs> um, you know, another movie that came out that year, and again, not really. I think it was in the summer, uh, not really a box office hit, was the, the Iron Giant, the we're animated. Just disgusting. We're just discussing it, yeah. Disgusting it. We were just yeah. discussing it, yeah. <laughs> so what a film that was, and you know, launching uh, you know, the career for the director and, and going on to do other films uh, and you know, Pixar and so on. Um, so that was a, one of the better movies of the year. And obviously, you know, a lot of the um, bigger box office hits that came out, you know, there were Certainly very entertaining. I wouldn't say they're among my favorite of all time, but certainly uh, entertaining during that year. Austin Powers, for example, you know, I had a great laugh seeing that uh, back then. You know, you brought up uh, Varsity Blues. You know, we, we did kind of skip over American Pie, which is the the comedy right. version of the, the Blair Witch, or not the teen comedy version of the Blair Witch Six Sense thing, this nothing movie from no one with no, with no one which made a hundred million dollars. Um, right. And then there are a few other teen movies you mentioned in your write up. She's all that varsity blues. 
Um, there's 10 Things I Hate About You and Cruel Intentions. And a lot of these teen movies had their moment. Um, do you have any thoughts about why these non-horror teen movies were having a, a moment in 1999? Well, I, yeah, I, I think it was sort of a, a, a branch out from the horror. You know, you, you can't keep doing horror over and over again. Obviously, teens like other kind of genres, too. So, um, but, you know, one of... One of the things from 1999, which I still think about to this day, that comes to mind is the movie She's All That. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I remember when it opened, it was uh, end of January and the box office was pretty dead. And I remember thinking, boy, this movie's not going to go anywhere. And I believe my my opening weekend projection was $4 million maximum. And it ended up quadrupling that. You know, it, it, it completely shattered that. It did more than that in one day, I think. Um, and became a big teen hit. I totally misjudged that one. Um, you know, thinking, oh, all these teen movies again and again, how could they possibly go out for another one? But it worked. And I think, you know, like you mentioned with uh, Scream, uh, which I believe was end of 96, um, yeah. really opened the door to uh, reviving the teen genre. Um, first with horror, of course, uh, so many of these cookie cutter uh, teen horror films came out. Almost all of them were making a lot of money. So then the natural progression would be, okay, well, you know, drama maybe doesn't sell as well. Comedy sells. So let's try comedy. And, you know, 1999 had a lot of these teen and young adult comedies that worked. The under 25 crowd, um, uh, the older teen crowd, some were PG-13, some were R. But there were a lot of films. Um, and it's it's two things. Number one, you had past success. And so people are green greenlighting these projects. And number two, they're pretty low cost. So if you make three of these and you know two don't work and one does work, you're still in good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think you know the way that studios work is that success gets you more success and and, and xeroxing. And so when one thing works, the teen horror, you keep copying that and making more of it. Um, you know, every studio looks at the other and says, wow, they had a hit with, um, you know, American Pie or a teen R-rated comedy. We need to have a hit with that. And they're looking for projects like that, some of which are as good, some are better, and oftentimes some are much worse. Um, but there's always that copying kind of mentality, whether it's superhero movies or, you know, teen horror or, you know, mythical fantasy films, whatever the genre might be. Um, you've always kind of had that. So I think a lot of 1999's teen hits came out of this um, world of teen horror maturing into uh, the next phase of teen movies, uh, which would be comedy. And then a lot of those got made in 98 and then released in 99. So um, I just want to, this has been really amazing and enlightening, but I, I really just want to ask one more question about kind of the, you know, that cross section of horror and comedy, like you're talking about. Um, what's going to happen with the cats movie? (laughs) 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 But I was planning on asking you no matter what, it just kind of fit perfectly, but, um, is it going to be the biggest bomb of all time or is it going to greatest showman us? Well, you're bringing up my favorite genre of musicals. Yeah, no, I know. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, obviously we've all seen the trailer. We've seen a lot of the chit chat and the buzz and, you know, with social media today, it's so immediate, uh, especially when it comes to crapping on a film or yeah. crapping on a trailer, it's immediate. Uh, it's so easy to do. It's so hard to make a film. 
but it's so easy to criticize it and say how horrible it is and then move on to the next thing that you're going to criticize. So, you know, I'm not surprised by the criticism. I think that uh, they've got a long time to sort of, you know, fix things up uh, with a different trailer, different looks. Uh, they, they have plenty of time to address it. Um, so I think they know what people sort of didn't like. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's still going to be this uh, CG, you know, this movie where uh, using CG, you've got human beings turned into these cats, you know, who walk around like people and maybe sometimes they don't. Um, so there's a certain sort of fence that they're in that they can't kind of go out of. But I think there's plenty of time to sort of rework it. W- will that work? I don't know. I, 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 odds are um, a, a musical, a family film, something which is fun for the whole family is going to work at Christmas time. So they have that in their favor. That's why they're in that release date to begin with. Um, Greatest Showman, for example, you know, it went on there and, and it made a lot of money during that time period. Um, but yeah, they, they've got to sort of look at uh, what they're presenting and uh, they've got a few months to make it more palatable to regular people, to families, to kids, to by the time mid-December comes when people start saying, okay, well, I've seen these different trailers or behind the scenes or whatever, um, and I'm ready to check this out. And maybe it's it's more music, you know, maybe it's more music driving people in despite what the visuals might look like. Uh, there's different ways to sort of, uh, attack that. You know, if, if it was me or if that was my film, if I was working at that, the behind the scenes and, you know, how it all got made. Um, so, you know, it's a challenge, uh, but they've got a lot of time. Um, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog is another example yeah. of, you know, maybe trailer doesn't work, but you learn, you learn from, uh, the public right away that, this trailer, which I thought was going to work, actually doesn't, you know, because now the public got to see it. And if you have a few months to work on it, then, um, and, you know, you're hiring all kinds of different experts and trailer houses and editors and focus groups and so on, um, you know, you can, you can, you can get past it. I mean, not that it's a similar situation at all, but if you remember Titanic, I was going to so say the same thing. Months. No movie I has ever been all- shit on pre release more than Titanic. Yep. Yeah, I mean that it got delayed uh, from the summer to the to the holiday season. Uh, all the news about uh, you know cast members getting sick and the budget going over yeah. and it'll never make its money back. All kinds of things, whatever you can think of, was all out there, and consumers knew about that before Titanic opened. And you know it uh, it pleased people. People had fun. At the end of the day, they had fun. Uh, and you know, it was three hours long, over three hours long. So, you know, anything's possible. They've got time. Uh, let's see what they do with it. Thank you so much for, for doing this. This was, um, this was fantastic. This was everything was, I hoped it, it would be. Amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Phil and I are long time box office watchers. <laughs> um, but it's great to talk to an actual pro about this and someone who's there in 99 made the predictions, had to stick by him and keeps him on the website. We truly appreciate yeah. you coming on, yeah. man. It was, it was, it was really fantastic. And yeah, uh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad, uh, you've been reading all these years and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, there's a lot more to come in the future as far as films go. And, and like I said, you know, the box office surprises us every year. So it's, it's great when those surprises happen, especially on the upside when something sure. which maybe isn't supposed to work ends up working and, and so on. So next week, 
uh, we're doing, you know, it's Christmas, guys. So we got to do Christmas. It is actually Christmas. It's Christmas actually falls on a Wednesday, which is crazy. Um, it almost never happened. Almost, <laughs> well, I mean that are, in, anyway. Um, so uh, we've decided to do Christmas ninety nine style mm-hmm. with the two biggest Christmas movies that anyone could think of, which is uh, Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas. That's right. And uh, Patrick Stewart's TNT movie of A Christmas Carol. You know what we didn't talk about <laughs> on this podcast with Emily Vanderwerf, the finest TV critic yeah. um, in the land, and, our, and our, obviously our, you know, our friend, our friend. Uh, future. She's one one of the two finest film critics, mm-hmm. along with Alan Sepinwall and any others that agree to come on our show. <laughs> Karen Hahn, um, <laughs> David Sue, David Sue. <laughs> um, God, we're so cool. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, it's weird that. There wasn't a proper Christmas movie released in 1999 in the theaters around Christmas time? What the fuck? Yeah. We had to, I mean, in case you guys hadn't noticed, (laughs) we had to really scrape together these two to pull together a Christmas episode. Uh, It's odd. Because Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie that was released in the summer. Which some might argue that movie might have been more successful. Certainly more Oscar nominations had it been released around Christmas. It also feels like a movie that should be released literally on Thanksgiving weekend and played through December. And Go has a yeah. Christmas element. And I'm pretty sure that was released. Um, it was like April. Yeah. So yeah, there I don't wasn't know. a proper Christmas movie. We were such heathens. I mean, it this, was a little weird. This year alone. Yeah. There's Last Christmas. Sure. And then there's all, all the, there's Netflix has a Christmas movie. Yeah, Disney, Disney Plus, Plus has Noel. with Noel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think there, you know, there, people release Christmas movies every year because they're kind of guaranteed to make yeah. some level of yeah. cash. In 99, we really were so secular that TNT had to dip in to the Christmas Carol for the 40th time. Pretty Did, good version. Yeah, I was going to say, pretty solid. Pretty good version. Uh, yeah, so we talk, I mean, we talk Christmas movies in general, if we're being, uh, if we're being honest. But, uh, but we talk about those two films, um, and, uh, you know, Emily Vanderwerf perhaps knows Christmas movies better than any person I've ever Seriously. met. <laughs> so, uh, tune in for that, uh, next week, 1999 Christmas. All right, cool. On, uh, on Twitter, are you, your G Pandia? On Twitter, it's at Gatesh Pandya. At Gatesh Pandya. The site is boxofficeguru.com. I urge everyone to check it out on uh, before and after every weekend. Cool, cool. Thank you so much for coming on, man. We really, really appreciate it. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. I'll uh, talk to you guys soon. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.